Ladies and gentlemen, Charlton Heston. The nominees for Best Picture of the Year are All That Jazz at Columbia 20th Century Fox Production, 20th Century Fox, Robert Allen Arthur, producer. Apocalypse Now, an omnizoetrope production, United Artists, Francis Coppola, producer, Fred Roos, Gary Fredrickson, and Tom Sternberg, co-producers. 20th Century Fox production, 20th Century Fox, Peter Yates, producer. Kramer versus Kramer, Stanley Jaffe Productions, Columbia, Stanley R. Jaffe, producer. And Norma Ray, a 20th Century Fox production, 20th Century Fox, Tamara Esayef and Alex Rose, producers. And the winner is... Hello there, cinephiles and know-it-alls, and welcome to the season finale of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. It's the only podcast that rights the wrong, celebrates the slighted, and rips Oscars from undeserving hands before bestowing them at long last upon the worthier recipients. My name is Lee Charles. And I'm Spro, and as we round out this first season, I would like to thank you for exploring all this rich history and enjoying these fine cinematic pieces of art with me. I do have to say really quick that this is all because of our podfather, Second Chance Cinema, which you invited me on several times. And I was just, I was probably more excited than I should have been. And even taken a couple of my suggestions and done done those movies on there. I can't, I honestly do. It's, it's been great. It's It's been so much fun. So that's it. Just wanted to say that. Oh, and forgive me, I need to introduce... We have a guest with us today, and this guest I have known my whole life. His name is Lawrence, and he is here today because he was born in the year that we are going to discuss. Lawrence, how are you doing? Pleasure to be here among such excellent and admirable film scholars. I only hope I can lend something of some import to this discussion. It's a wonderful podcast that you guys have built up here and a really neat idea I'd like to add. So thank you for letting me be here. This will probably be the first recording that we have made where the episodes have gone live. And so I do want to say that I am excited to get into a 1979 film with somebody born in 1979, because one of the things that I hear from our audience is I don't know some of the older movies. So the fact that we get to talk to somebody, you know, because to me, 41 years is not that long ago. And I don't know if that if I'm just ignoring my age. (laughs) I like the way Joe Rogan always puts it. Joe Rogan's like 40 years. What is that? Like, that's like a person and a half ago. You're right. I think in terms of the feeble human brain, it feels like a super duper long time ago. But 40 years, 40, 41 years is not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. I mean, if you want to think about it cinematically, it's a lifetime ago. So while I know which way I lean, I do think there's a pretty strong dark horse this year. But we are talking about 1979 when the film that won Best Picture was Kramer versus Kramer. (laughs) 
Kramer versus Kramer. People that have been goodly enough to get back to us have said the Raging Bull episode, where we, we chose Raging Bull over Ordinary People's. People were saying, friends and, and listeners were telling me, it's like, you know, that I couldn't get into that one because I haven't seen any of those movies. And I guess if I had my way, I would make people see movies, <laughs> especially American films from the 70s, the late 60s and the 70s. What a time to be a, a film goer. What a time to be alive. I want there to be a desire to not only talk about these movies, but first and foremost, to see movies from 79, from 78 and 77 and backwards, you know, not just because I want our listeners to be in the know, but it's because of how an amazing of a time that was for American cinema. I would like to add that listening to the other episodes of this podcast, I think you guys are pretty much always on the mark, but I doubt that there are a few examples where a movie needs to have its Oscar stripped away and given to somebody else. I, so that's another reason why I'm really glad to be a part of this particular episode is because I don't think there was a greater travesty for best picture than Kramer versus Kramer when stacked up against some and in one particular movie that year. And I do want to say that I think our structure of the show evolved from what it was, but we did come at it with, like, we could just talk about that one category and pontificate on that. Like when we took the Oscar away from Ordinary People and gave it to Raging Bull, we could have just focused on those two movies. But I will say, it's not only like the old movies. I heard from a listener that went out and watched Social Network after our first episode. There are people that will just not watch Oscar films because Oscar, because the Academy Awards gave them an Oscar. And to them, that just seems like that's not a film that they want to go see. And I think one thing that we're doing with this podcast is that we're showing if our listeners come to trust us and trust our opinion, that we are not going to blow smoke up any film's ass to talk about it. We slightly talk about the ones that we don't like, and then we will throw in clips and try to sell the movies that we do like. But today, we are talking about 1979, Kramer versus Kramer. And since this is our season finale, our fun fact, I want to dive into the best picture category itself. 563 films have been nominated. 92 have won. This is the only category where every member of the Academy can submit a nomination for and vote on the final ballot. This is the award, and it is given to the producers of the movie. But what does the Academy look for? The one critique of the Academy I will always agree with is that they seem to only look at and award the same type of movie. One that is either historical fiction or a drama. Long past are the days of the musical winning or the comedy. And in time when they are looking at films they have already looked at, for instance, Gladiator being a retelling of Spartacus, and more to the point of today's episode, A Marriage Story with Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson being a 21st century version of Street versus Hoffman and Kramer versus Kramer. Some genres of films, or mediums in the case of an animation, have received few or no nominations or awards. Only three animated films have been nominated, Beauty and the Beast, Up, and Toy Story 3. Several musical adaptations based on material previously filmed in non-musical form have won Best Picture, including Gigi, West Side Story, My Fair Lady, The Sound of Music, Oliver, and Chicago. No comic book or superhero film has won, and only two Good. have ever been nominated. Black Panther and Joker. Only two fantasy films have won. Can you name those two? Return of the King, Shape yep. of Water. The Lord of the Rings, Shape of Water. Good job. Although more have been nominated. The Silence of the Lambs is the only horror film to win Best Picture, and only five others have been nominated. The Exorcist, Jaws, The Sixth Sense, Black Swan, and Get Out. No documentary feature has yet been nominated for Best Picture, although Chang was nominated in the unique and artistic production 
production category at the 1927-28 awards. And no science fiction film has won the award, though 11 films have been nominated. A Clockwork Orange, Star Wars, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Avatar, District 9, Inception, Gravity, Her, Mad Max, Fury Road, The Martian, and Arrival. And can I just say I think that's a terrible travesty in and of itself because I have always been a great lover of that genre of film and I don't think that it gets its just desserts. Several of the films that you mentioned there, particularly A Clockwork Orange, are just absolute masterpieces to be passed over for the most coveted award. is It's a bummer. I'd like to see some, something in that genre win in my lifetime. That'd be pretty cool. I went to bat for Arrival and I know one of our listeners really wanted us to talk about District 9, which we might come back and talk about in the, uh, the second season. It's, it always ends up being science fiction movies that I want to climb inside. Persists even to this day. It is one reason that I like to bring up the Saturn Awards because the Saturn Awards do look at horror and science fiction for their awards shows and they usually come up with some really good ones like the year that they uh, gave the Best Actress Award to Charlize Theron for Mad Max Fury Road. That movie was off the chain too. My God. That whole series has just gotten better with each iteration. Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! All right. Caught somewhere between art and commerce, the Academy Awards had always tried its best to award fine filmmaking and not care about ratings. But the times have changed. When The Dark Knight failed to get a nod, and we could talk about whether it should have or not, the Academy expanded its nominations of Best Picture to 10. When everyone knew Black Panther was not going to win, and we could talk about whether it should have been even nominated, the Academy floated an idea for Best Popular Picture. Look, casual theatergoers will never understand the Oscars. Social justice warriors will always complain about the nominations. If the Academy Awards were not televised, if they were not an occasion for the richest of us to fluff each other, would the nominations and awards be different? I think it's a good question. I think back to our first episode when you discussed the ways in which people vote and then at the actual ceremony they have in that like opera booth or whatever it is, they have all these governors sort of overseeing the the presentation of each award. And it'll never happen, but imagine if you could, as you're saying, behind closed doors in some sort of a like a conference room, a bunch of governors sitting at swivel chairs, not inviting anyone there and just deciding, going through award by award, sitting in swivel chairs at an oaken oval table and just being like, okay, who's best cinematography? Who's best art direction? And each governor saying, this person, this person, this person. Quite honestly, you know, I've always been the naysayer since day one. I used to love the Oscars. I wouldn't miss it if they did it that way. I wouldn't know, you know, the overproduced bullshit that bloats the show. The thing that I miss about living in LA was that you knew what was going to be awarded or at least nominated based off of what people were saying literally on the streets. I knew Moonlight was going to win because everybody on the street of LA was talking about Moonlight and I never saw it. I never heard of it before then. I knew Parasite was going to win because everybody was talking about that because everybody gets these streamers in the mail and the voters will sit down to vote and pretty much talk to somebody else like, oh my gosh, I have 30 movies to watch. Which ones did you watch? What were your favorites? Okay, I'll watch those five. And that is how we get the nominations from hundreds of films to about 20 films being nominated in every show. That's why Best Actress is probably in the Best Picture. And 
So after deep diving, 1979 was not a good year for film in my eyes. One stands out as a mirror of our society, which is one of my favorite quotes of what art should be, a reflection of the times we are in to better understand ourselves. One film is masterfully made containing the work of some of our greatest artists, and one film stands the test of time. All three of them, I think, you can watch today, and they hold the same attention. They give you the same awe and wonder, and I can't wait to dive in to the 1979 released films up for Best Picture of 1980. Let's get into what wasn't nominated. We're going to pass over the dark horse, but first and foremost, 1941 by Steven Spielberg. Mr. Ward Herbert Douglas, 1313 Pelican Way. The Coast Artillery Command has determined your property to be strategically advantageous for the installation of an enemy aircraft defense battery. We want to put this 40-millimeter anti-aircraft gun in your yard, sir. Joan, they want to put this gun in our yard. I think if you are a fan of John Belushi and you haven't seen 1941, you absolutely need to see it. He's the best thing about it. Not only is it not worthy of a Best Picture nomination, it is one of, if not Spielberg's biggest flop. This is on the heels of Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The man was already the biggest thing in Hollywood years before this movie came out, but it's a musical comedy war. (laughs) All I remember from watching it, because I've only ever seen it once, is John Belushi. So Nice. Next up is Being There with Peter Sellers. Just to give everybody a taste of expensive UCLA education, in the screenwriting program, Being There is actually a famous film because it is the only film that professors will acknowledge successfully wrote a protagonist that doesn't change throughout the entire movie. Everything is happening around him, but he really has no character arc. So if you're a writer in LA right now and you want and you're one of those like, I don't want my protagonist to change too much, being there is really the only film that anybody has ever successfully done it. I really um, enjoyed this film a lot. I got a special place in my heart for this. And it's all because of that character that Peter Sellers creates. He's kind of sort of forced gumpish, but not nearly as campy. And and that's interesting that you point out. I really did never noticed it. He is the same person from start to finish. There's some great sequences in that movie. In particular, my favorite is when he's first released from the home that he has lived his entire life when his master dies. And he goes out into the world sort of like this ape of a man. And of course, they play the 2001 A Space Odyssey theme, but it's like a tricked out urban disco remix. And he's just wandering the streets of New York City. What a cool film. I really like that one a lot. I do remember liking it. I was turned on to it because I got super duper into Dr. Strangelove. And then I got super duper into Peter Sellers. And I learned that not only was that being there was his last movie, but he died like a couple months after that movie came out. My memories of that movie are that scene that you just brought up, Lawrence. Shirley MacLaine double clicking the mouse because she thought, you know, she misunderstands him because he loves to watch television. And, you know, she thinks that the two of them are about to be intimate. And she's like, what do you like? And he's transfixed by the television and he's like, I like like, to watch. I like to watch. So she, (laughs) and then of course I remember the final sequence, which kind of comes out of nowhere. Really cool scene where he walks off, off across the water just to make sure that we're not confused. Like maybe he's walking across a just barely submerged boardwalk of some kind. He takes his umbrella and dips it way down deep into the water that he is standing on top of and then continues to walk out across the 
lake, which begs the question, did he really walk on water or was that just everybody's misguided perception of him? That was his swan song. He desperately wanted that role. It's quite a departure from the rest of his career and an interesting final film. Our next film is Escape from Alcatraz with Clint Eastwood. I just watched this movie and it's so difficult to have that movie on and not give it your full attention. I like everything about that movie except Clint Eastwood. I think Clint Eastwood, he's fine in the role. Sort of, uh, we talked about this in another episode. I said that Tom Hanks in Road to Perdition is fine in the role. I just feel like he's wrong for the role. And I feel like Eastwood is wrong for the role in... Every actor is perfectly cast in that movie, except Eastwood. Hollywood always does the thing where they go, oh, we need a name. We need a name to sell the movie. And sure, that's a proper argument because money is involved. But in the same instance, Escape from Alcatraz is one of the more cooler stories of American history. For my memory, that's the first time I remember seeing the prison culture even hinted at. There's no rape scene in it because Eastwood is able to fend off the big, bald (laughs) motherfucker. I don't think I saw Escape from Alcatraz until after I had seen Shawshank. So Shawshank, in that sense, was very revelatory for me. But then to go back, you know, 15 years to 1979 from Shawshank, it, it, it feels realistic. It doesn't feel like a fantasy the way kind of Shawshank feels like a fantasy. Well, one movie that we have, we did talk about a little bit so far, but the origination is Mad Max was also released this year. I don't think I would necessarily put it anywhere in the best picture category, but I do think it deserves a mention. This this spawned a franchise that just keeps getting better and better. Absolutely. But it's so corny. Uh, Totally. (laughs) It's so corny. (laughs) It's like El Mariachi to me. You know, like it's like a direct getting their feet below him moving on to something a little bit happier monty python's life of brian still my favorite python movie holy grail is obviously flawless but it's a goof life of brian to me is the coolest the coolest script the coolest movie they shot that on the sets left over from franco zifrelli's Jesus of Nazareth miniseries. And it was funded like their previous film, Holy Grail. It was funded by the Beatles, by Led Zeppelin, by Pink Floyd, because all these bands were like, we got to see a Python film. Even George George Harrison's even in Life of Brian briefly. They were really trying to stir the pot with that one. (laughs) Oh, man. And it was all based on an idea from Eric Idle, who the older I get, the more I realize how much influence he had on the group. Not only did he come up with the idea of I think his quote was Jesus Christ quest for glory. (laughs) But what's the most famous thing from life? Brian, it's his song at the end. Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. Yeah. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. Hey. Always look on the bright side of life Always look on the light side of life I still thank Comedy Central for playing all of the the Monty Python's Flying Circus 
episodes. It's a great sketch comedy show, and and I still to this day discover something new because of the the time gap and the the culture gap. It's it's Britain, it's the '60s and the '70s, so there's jokes that went over my head when I was much younger, and when I rewatch it now, I discover new things that I never never noticed yeah, before. It's a it's, great it's, show. It's still the Western world, though. I mean, all the political references are still relevant to the United States. One thing I do want to say is for anybody that has seen or not seen Life of Brian, the film is about a guy named Brian. His life mirrors the life of Jesus. And it's it's lampooning, not necessarily religion, it's definitely lampooning people and people's need to believe in things. It lampoons isms. It's awesome because you can go on YouTube and you can type in John Cleese and Michael Palin debate and you will find some of the coolest videos. And this is for Python fans that have never seen this. John Cleese and Michael Palin went on a panel show. I saw this. I saw this where they went toe to toe with one of the cardinals of the Church of England. Those are great videos. Michael Palin has always been my favorite Python. I think that, uh, and I've seen this in the sort of reviews of the film, they concentrate always on the religious angle. Uh, even you know before they've seen it, they've decided this is a film about religion. I don't think it is entirely. I think that what we've chosen to do is what we've always done in Python. We've done for three series and done for three films. We have taken a certain group of people, which are generally sort of England in the present day, and put them into a historical context. I think that's what we've done with this film. I think it isn't entirely about religion. It's about the people who live in anyone who lives and makes up uh, our society today. It's also about closed systems of thought, whether they're political or theological or religious, whatever. Systems by which whatever evidence is given to the person, he merely adapts it, fits it into his ideology. You show the same event to a Marxist and a Catholic, for example, they both of them find, they both have explanations of it. I mean, it's what to be pompous poppers on about with falsifiability of theories. I mean, once you've got actually got um, an idea that is whirring around so fast that no other light or contrary evidence can come in, then I think it's very dangerous. I don't think it's dangerous to someone like Malcolm, because he's actually a very nice man. But I think he is the sort of guy that this film is actually having a go at. All right. So before we get into the, the five nominated films for the year, there is the Dark Horse that we were talking about. And this Dark Horse wasn't even nominated. Since we were talking about 1979, some of our audience might have guessed that we are talking about Ridley Scott's Alien starring Sigourney Weaver. Just an absolute genre-defining masterpiece. This movie affected not only film, but television and even video games for decades following. God damn. I mean, talking about wanting to climb into a movie, man. I didn't want to climb into that one. I wanted to be as far away from the Nostromo as possible. Oh, I wanted to, man. I still do. It's that same draw that you get with, like, Silent Hill. I don't know why. I know it's dangerous, but I want to be there. I want to not care that I am whatever million light years away from Earth and that it's just a natural thing. I want to be sitting around with all these guys, having breakfast, drinking coffee, exploring worlds. Boy, is that movie good. The art direction of that movie, and it's very similar in Blade Runner, was the best way I can describe it is very claustrophobic, very tight, 
spaces and not a lot of room to escape from danger. It created a, a incredibly tense moments within the film that and that in particular with Alien just built and built and built until it was just it was just Ripley against the alien. She was the last one left and she's so vulnerable. You know, female character so vulnerable. She's walking around in her panties. I mean she's just like Pulling off the third act, too, that's the toughest part of any movie. You get past the, the climax, and it's like, how am I going to resolve this? And god damn it, uh, the influence of that movie, it would be like trying to gather confetti that you threw at a wedding. It would, might be possible to figure out every single person working in the industry that was influenced by it, but it would take you forever. And all you got to do is watch sci-fi horror and it's all there. And as far as the art direction is concerned in both Blade Runner and Alien, Ridley Scott was the vision. He was the visionary. It was Ridley Scott's vision. Make no mistake, Scott was looking over the shoulder of every single person, just as David Fincher does on the set of his movies. Scott knows what's going on. And Alien in 79 and Blade Runner in 82. Can you think of two more amazing and more unique science fiction contributions than those two movies? And to make them three years apart it just blows my mind. I can't think of another director that made two more important films in three years than those. Well, I started the show saying that there was one film that stands the test of time. And Alien is it for me because you can't tell other than maybe Sigourney Weaver's hair that this is a 1979 film. There's a little bit of graininess to Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. And then there's also the pretty horrible ape costumes in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Alien to me is probably, no, it's definitely the number one sci-fi film of the 20th century that looks as good in the 21st century as anything coming out today. So put the feather in your cap that that might be a film that we come back to to take the helm of Kramer versus Kramer, but we do have four other films that were nominated for Best Picture of the Year to talk about, to try and rule out, if they will. The first one is Breaking Away. This is a, a cycling movie movie starring Dennis Christopher, Dennis Quaid, Daniel Stern, Jackie Earl Haley, and revisiting these actors is probably the best thing about watching this film because everything else I thought was rather boring. And it's a very weird nomination because it's like Dazed and Confused meets West Side Story meets like a Lance Armstrong mockumentary. The reason why I watched this one is because I challenged myself one year to watch the AFI's best 10 in every 10 category, meaning the best 10 films of every genre, like best sports movie, best horror movie. And this was, I think, eighth on the top 10 sports films of all time. That to me, like, I don't want to come down too hard on this film, but to say it's one of the best sports films of all time, ugh, God, I think it's horseshit. It was something to put on in the background. It was hard to get into. There was some very big cliches going, like they had to duct tape his feet to the pedal so he could finish the race, which great. You know, like it's the same thing as like days of thunder when, you know, he's going to burn out his tire. Like it's the same type of story. So I don't know 
like Alien should have definitely got a nomination over Breaking Away, as far as I'm concerned. And that's really all that I have to say about this film. If anybody else has anything they want to throw in. We've talked about movies that were made for us and movies that weren't. And I think this one was made for our parents' generation. My father really appreciates this movie. And this is one that he he's brought up many, many times. And I think for all the reasons that the three of us would watch this and be like, Bleh, he would find it very quaint and maybe realistic or at least relatable. So I understand. I, I completely agree with you. It's one of those ones. It's very easy to knock off the list. And yes, Aliens should have been in there and not breaking away. Moving on. Moving on. Norma Ray, a young Sally Field who I developed a crush on as we watched this movie. This one is based on a book that was written by a guy named Henry P. Lieferman. Based on a true story, it's about a woman named Crystal Lee Sutton, who sort of is this post-feminist who doesn't know she is a post-feminist. She works at a textile plant, and she gets involved with a union agitator. And two of them together bring about the establishment of a union in her very podunk, backwards-ass hillbilly town. And it's a frustrating movie, like any other movie where you've got your protagonists that are fighting against this system that is designed to oppress, suppress, and rob the everyman. Obviously, it's a very pro-union film. And it's interesting to watch it now, 41 years later, because in the subsequent 41 years, labor unions have pretty much been all but neutered by a combination of corruption and really bad press. I found an, uh, an article by author David Kopf, and he says that union membership was recorded at or below 11% in 2018, which was the lowest recorded percentage since they began to collect these stats in the early 80s. So just following the film, maybe a couple of years, they started collecting these stats. And politically, it's it's an interesting one to watch because obviously unions are controversial. They are something that are is associated with Marxism and socialism. I will say Sally Field's very good, but I think... It's not best picture material. No, it's not. It's not. It's got a good look to it, though. It's got a really good, authentic look to it. Director Martin Ritt and DP John Alonzo did a really good job, especially in the handheld work within the textile plant. It's loud as fuck, but you can still hear the dialogue. Something like when I watch a David Fincher movie like Social Network and they're in that club and, you know, Sean Parker and Zuckerberg are having that conversation and you can tell that they're yelling over the music and it feels real. It's that same feeling. It feels really real. 
So it is a well-made movie, undeniably, but no, it's not best picture material. It feels like a, uh, you know, for those people that have seen Aaron Brockovich, it feels very similar to that. Although, quite honestly, I would take Sally Field over Jay Robs. I have to stay true to my word that I do like, when looking back at films, it's also a reflection of the times. And I do think Norma Ray definitely does that. This film, and I'm going to date myself, and I hope both of you know what I'm talking about, but this film lived the scene where she gets up on the machines and she has union on the cardboard above her head lived rent-free in my head for probably about 20 years before I even saw the film because there was a trailer for a studio that happened before like almost every VHS movie. And I can't tell you now. I'll look it up trying to find it for I the recall this. I recall yeah. this too. Yep, me too. In fact... And it starts like, I think like Scent of a Woman is on it. Like it's just, it goes through all these different films and yeah, there's... like the movies of your life. Something like and that. And I think like Harry Potter Jr. or Louis Armstrong, somebody is playing music through it all. Like, and it's, and like they'll like put in like little flashes of scenes. Like, It's a Wonderful Life was a big one because mm-hmm. they're like, look, Daddy, every time the, bu- that's right. That's right. You know, like <laughs> this fucking trailer is just stuck in my head. And Norma Ray was that. So I watched Norma Ray. I owned it for probably five years and I watched it for this episode. And when I got to that scene, the inner child of me just finished the race, like went through the ticker tape to be like, ha ha, we have made it. But not best picture. Not best picture at all. The funny thing is with this next film is we talked about it once before and I passed over it being like, yeah, you know, it, it was a film. And because in that episode, I had not seen it yet. It has two released years because it was released in France, I believe, in 1978 and then released in America in 1979. And that is the Bob Fosse film. It's showtime, folks. All that jazz. All that jazz. Can I start off on this one and just say this was the only film of the nominees that I had never seen. I I quite frankly had never even heard of it. And Lee lent it to me so that I could do a little homework for this podcast. And I got to say that if nothing else good comes out of this podcast, this movie blew me away. Didn't have much of an interest in even watching it when Lee explained to me who was in it and what it was about. I'm like, the dude from Jaws is in a musical? What? And I got to say, it completely threw me back. I I couldn't believe how good of a movie this was. And when I found out that it was semi-autobiographical, I was even more intrigued because this is a character who is just spiraling down towards self destruction. He's overworking himself. He's burning the candle at both ends. He may or may not be addicted to alcohol and and drugs. And and he's he's trying to balance his work life. He's got this beautiful little daughter who is just enamored with him. And and he's missing out on, on the most important things in life while trying to chase down some career dream or goal. And it's just an incredible film. I loved it. I'm so glad that you did, man. I didn't want to watch this. The name of it, I'm like, fucking Broadway. (laughs) 
I think I even texted you, Spro. I'm like, I'm getting ready to watch all that jazz and I don't want to. <laughs> but it was about 15, maybe 20 minutes into the movie when you start to notice the editing and you notice that it it's not going to be a linear story. It's this very odd... It cuts back and forth between his imagination. He's imagining this woman who looks like an angel. Emily told me at one point that it was supposed to be the angel of death, but I read online that it was supposed to be a facsimile of his first wife who died. But it was at that moment where what was happening in the present was being commented upon, where he and this woman dressed in white would would talk about it. Immediately, I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. I got it. I'm with it. And it won Best Editing, and it deserved Best Editing. Another interesting thing about this is that this movie, though it wasn't the central theme, it had the theme of divorce in it. I found that the the way that it was handled in this film was far more mature and healthy than the way that Kramer versus Kramer presented it. Now, I know, of course, both are possibilities for reality. There are instances where divorces are very ugly and combative, but then there's also divorces where they're amicable and they're two adults who realize that they don't belong together anymore and they're still trying to make the best of it. I thought it was very sweet. I thought it was very heartfelt, especially the exchanges between Roy Scheider's character and the beautiful little girl that played his daughter. The moments where he was practicing dance with her while she was discussing how he should find somebody new and settle down. It was just, what a great film. Just loved it. That girl was never- Never in, in anything else, yeah. Never in, her name was, uh, or is, Urzebat Foldy. And she plays Gideon's daughter, which is interesting too, because Fosse's own daughter was also a dancer and appears in the film. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Like the first scene between the two of them when he, He's teaching her how to dance and the whole time he's instructing her she's instructing him being like you should do this you should stop doing that anything you want to tell me well i promised mom i wouldn't bring it up but you're gonna bring it up anyway <laughs> sit down michelle because you can tell me anything you know that give me a rest right jump oh. it's just that i keep wondering dad benjamin's what is it you keep wondering why don't you get married again do a head roll. I don't get married again because I can't find anyone I dislike enough to inflict that kind of torture on. Hey, why don't you marry Katie? She's terrific. Keep rolling your head. Straighten your leg. Yeah, you're right. She's terrific. That's exactly why I don't want to marry her. The movie had a lot of heart. You could tell that this was the director. director's... He was bearing his soul when he made this movie, without a doubt. It was the heart attack that fucked me up. Because I watched this during the pandemic and watching movies in the middle of the night. And this was one that I watched completely alone. And you knew he was going to have a heart attack. I mean, you knew it was coming. The impending heart attack, she was like giving me an anxiety attack. I do like how we circled around about how, you know, we want this podcast to inspire people to reach out and see old movies that will be new to them that they will appreciate because everybody's complaining nowadays what Hollywood is giving us especially now with COVID and everything being locked out, we're getting a whole lot of drivel. This is the age of superheroes and sequels. And so one thing that you can do for yourself is you could go back and watch some of these great films. When it comes to all that jazz, I think Lauren said it best. This is raw. This is the director revealing his soul. And you don't get this very often. And when you do, it's usually just self-congratulatory masturbation. It's usually 
not this real and it's not this very well artistically done. It's, it usually seems like a one man show where a person is telling you what they found interesting about their own lives. Where this one, it's a cautionary tale of how you could lose yourself in your work and slowly kill yourself while also being one of the best at your trade. You're just supposed to experience Bob Fosse's experiences and then live your life in a different way. I think it's one of those films that everybody should see. Just before we move on, I just want to give a shout out to the dad from ALF, Max Wright, who plays Gideon's agent. We talked about how this is semi-autobiographical. It's about when Bob Fosse was simultaneously directing the film Lenny about Lenny Bruce starring Dustin Hoffman and also doing the Broadway revival of Chicago. He edited the living shit out of the movie Lenny. And I guess he had his agent breathing down his neck and he put it in the movie. <laughs> and and Max Wright, who plays his agent, has only just a couple of scenes in the movie. But I was dying laughing at this guy and his cadence, his delivery is so singular. <laughs> He is great. So many good bit part actors. Lithgow as Lucas Sargent, who I guess supposedly was based on a version of Fosse's real life rival, Michael Bennett, who died even younger than Fosse did of a heart attack as well, but only a few months before him. Anthony Holland as Paul Dan, the piano player who was supposedly based on Stephen Schwartz. We could talk about the third act, but other than just to say it is very unnerving, very surreal, very bizarre, and very sad and very impactful. You should see this movie if you haven't seen it. Yeah, this one's top of the list of movies to see. In fact, if the other movie that we're going to talk about wasn't the one that I choose, this would definitely be Best Picture of the Year. I love this movie. I, I got to say, guys, I'm telling you, the, the best thing that came out of you inviting me to join your podcast was I got to watch this movie. So thank you. It was a great film. Not the instant fame with 20 listeners that you're about to, <laughs> about to get. <laughs> A lot of the times we're taking the second place away as well. We usually go down to third place. So would we say Kramer versus Kramer is a third place film or lower for the year? Yes. I, I, I know that Lawrence would say yes. Indubitably. What do you think, Lee? No, I think all that jazz. I'm a technical guy. And if we're going to talk Kramer versus Kramer, as far as technical aspects of film make an impression on me. And Kramer versus Kramer, I mean, it was based on, upon a book. And it just feels like somebody took a book and put it on film. It's a good adaptation of a book, but stack it up against all that jazz. It feels unremarkable in that sense. So pretty much my arguments looking at it, kind of like how we did Ordinary People, is that Kramer versus Kramer illustrates what was uh, epidemic of divorce through the 70s. The rates of divorce were skyrocketing. Everybody was trying to jump ship from their marriage. And so the reason why I think Kramer versus Kramer won versus the movie that we are going to talk about is because it was being a reflection of society at that time. I'm saying like, this is what people are going through. This is their experience. This is if you want to get your own divorce, you're going to hire attorneys and those attorneys are going to go to war for you. And no matter what, it's going to be an awful situation because everybody fights 
quite sturdy in a divorce. There's a lot of instances now where you see people co-parent and they get along and they're doing great and, and you almost want to applaud those people because Kramer versus Kramer, as somebody that has gone through their own divorce, rang really true and it's a tough movie with fantastic performances. I'll agree with you entirely on the fantastic performances. I would even say that Meryl Streep's performance in this movie might be, her final scene might be one of the most real and heartbreaking moments in a movie that I can think of. I don't want to take anything away. I know that we've shit on her <laughs> in a previous episode for her work in Florence Foster Jenkins, but it's undeniable. She is amazing in this movie. I don't feel similarly, though, about Dustin Hoffman. Well, Dustin Hoffman, it's funny how much we have talked about in just seven episodes, because we have also, I've pontificated about Dustin Hoffman before, about the fact that he is a great actor, but he never really jumps out of his role. He's like a Gene Hackman, where he is just, he delivers lines very well and in a believable fashion. I wouldn't say like this character and this is any different than his character, you know, fighting a virus and outbreak. I would completely disagree with you. I think that Hoffman in The Graduate and in Midnight Cowboy shows... Oh, he was a boy. He was a boy. Well, he shows range as a boy. He got older and then became like, ah, fuck it. I'm just going to be Dustin Hoffman. I think that he was much better as a character actor. Some of his roles like as uh, the Rain Man and Louis Dega. The character actor stuff is where I think that Hoffman really shines. I did not find his performance good in Kramer versus Kramer. The scene that irritated me the most was the exchanges between him and his son. I just want to see if you were paying attention. It's been a long time since I made this. That's fun, isn't it? When was the last time Mommy got you in the kitchen? I don't like it when it's in pieces. Look, does French toast taste the same whether it's in pieces or whether it's whole? I mean, bread is bread, you know? Besides, what you don't know is, is that French toast is always folded. You go into the best restaurants anywhere in the world and you see folded French toast. You get more bites that way, right? <laughs> and while that's going, Daddy's gonna make a little bit of coffee for himself. You having a good time? Are you? All right, we're having a great time. I don't remember the last time I, I ever had such a good time. Daddy's gonna make himself a little coffee. It's too much coffee. No, 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 no. I like it strong. And Mommy always makes it too weak. Can I have some orange juice? Orange juice, right. Right, one of OJ coming up. What a kid. Daddy, it's burning, it's burning. What? It's burning. Oh, Jesus. Oh, damn it! Oh, God damn her! You know, they were a complete contrast to the exchanges between Roy Scheider and the little girl that played his daughter. Those felt very genuine and very heartfelt. Hoffman sounded like somebody who never had kids before who was thrown into a room with them. Hey, we're going to have a lot of fun, right? Let's have some fun. It's going to be great, right? I didn't care for his performance in this. It kind of feels like he's phoning it in after a while. I think his interactions with the kid, they're purposeful. He's supposed to be flustered and act like he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing because he has not had to be mom. And he's like, hey, we're going to have a great time. We're going to make pancakes. And then he freaks out. I don't want to take it completely away from Hoffman. He he can play an everyman. But in the end, this is just an everyman. To me, his 
performance as uh, Razzo Rizzo in Midnight Cowboy. I mean, he'll never do better than that. Anybody could have played this role. Hoffman plays it well, but I don't think it's difficult to play an absent father who's thrown into a situation where you have to be a present father. If I could say too, uh, he makes me uncomfortable because the scenes where he's loving are less believable than the scenes where he gets very angry. It's the scenes of anger that are so much more like jarring. Yeah, the than- scene where he whips the glass against the the wall when Streep's character comes back into the picture after, after having been gone for the better part of a year, she comes back and that's the only scene that stands out to me because you're like, "Oh, they're going to they're going to try to reconcile on some level, maybe not get together, but maybe they're going to try to work together so that they could be good co-parents, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And then you realize that Streep's character just simply wants to take the kid away from him after he spent all this time trying to be a single parent and his reaction where he whips the glass against the wall is just so sudden and frightening and street plays it off really well and i found out later he did that without her knowledge he just whipped that glass against the wall without her knowing that he was going to do it and her reaction is completely genuine because she was suddenly terrified at, at the sound of broken glass and it's kind of actually almost a dick move to do because he could have gotten somebody hurt doing that i don't want to spend a whole lot of time just talking about dustin hoffman but i will say that from what i've read True or not, Meryl Streep has said that he was very volatile on the set and that when they would have scenes together like that one or other scenes that required Meryl to be afraid of him, I guess, that he would antagonize her. I mean, he struck her once. He whispered the name of her recently deceased husband in her ear, John Cazale. That's ice cold. It's weird. But apart from Hoffman and Streep, I think Streep is great. I think Hoffman's fine. I don't like him. So that's maybe my own prejudice. Robert Benton's direction of the film is completely unremarkable. We're talking about technicalities. It's shot in such an unremarkable way that I don't understand how he won Best Director and how it was earmarked for Best Picture. And this might come back to what Spro was talking about, that it was just, it was a film that took the temperature of the culture at the time. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's the beginning and the end of it. And maybe that's why it won. And I think also part of the other reason why it might have won is that at the culmination of that final scene where Streep prostrates herself after winning legally, she feels morally and ethically compromised to the point that she has to go back to him because she's like, oh, he's learned his lesson. I have to be fair with him. So she goes and it's such a great scene. I kept thinking about Billy and I, I was thinking about him waking up in his room and with his little clouds all around that I painted and I thought I should have painted clouds downtown because then he would think that he was waking up at home. I came here to take my son home. And I realize he already is home. I love him very much. I'm not going to take him with me.
listen, why don't you go upstairs and see him, and I'll wait here. gets the smile on her face. She brightens almost and it gives you this notion that like, maybe they're gonna get back together. That hint at the end, the nuclear family is gonna be okay. I think that's why the film won Best Picture. When we look at the other, the top two films that we're putting at the top, both of them make you feel a certain degree of discomfort. And Kramer versus Kramer is the only one that I think in the end goes, it's gonna be okay. And perhaps that's what the Academy wanted you to feel or, you know, like how we said, everybody went to watch that film and then vote on what was best picture. They voted on the one that made them feel good in the end and not the one that, you know, showed you a sweaty man having a heart attack and made you clutch your own chest. Or the film that I think we should jump into right away is the one that shows you a real life house slaughtering at the end and says, enjoy your popcorn and have a good ride home. So without further ado, if you know anything about this year where all that jazz went against Alien, went against Kramer versus Kramer, went against, I'm going to throw Norma Ray in there. The film that did not win Best Picture, which I think looks as beautiful today as any film you could possibly see, is Apocalypse Now. You've heard of Colonel Walter E. Kurtz. Your mission is to terminate the Colonel's command. Terminate. Terminate with extreme prejudice. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Very obviously, he has gone insane. This is the end, my only friend, the end. Are you an assassin? I'm a soldier. It is absolutely shameful that this movie did not win Best Picture. Absolutely shameful. I have seen few films in my life that got under my skin so deeply as this one did. It's in the backdrop of an epic adventure journey of dark proportions. Every square inch of this film looks amazing, sounds amazing, is perfectly acted. I could not stop watching it. And then when the Redux version came out, I happily strapped in for an extra something like, I don't know, 45, 50 minutes of additional footage. Though it didn't add a ton, I was happy to go on an even longer journey up the, what is it, the Da Nang River. What an incredible film. You're not going to be disappointed at all by this film. 
I would pose this. This is a masterpiece. One right? hundred. Is... It is Coppola's magnum opus, no question. That's saying something since he did the, the Godfather. I watched it completely in the darkness. And it came home to me, as much as I love Alien, this movie is also a horror film. And it's very important that you mentioned that the reason that Kramer versus Kramer won and this one didn't, whether it's the Redux or the theatrical cut, is that it is unnerving. Certainly there are points of irony and humor. Robert Duvall's character rightfully nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Charlie, don't surf! (laughs) The further you descend into the heart of darkness, the more it becomes like, I can't can't do this anymore. (laughs) It's, It's a slow burn and it builds and it is so awesome that you don't get to see the target of his mission until the the final act of the movie. What's interesting to note, at least I think that the main character and the character that he is ordered to kill are pretty much the same people. It's just that the character that we're waiting to meet by the end of the film has gone a little further down the rabbit hole or maybe much further down the rabbit hole. This movie deals with some really cool themes. I mean, obviously the the traditional cliche of war is hell, but it, it wrestles with the idea that, yeah, war is hell. So if you want to go home, you're going to need to act like a demon to get the job yeah. done. The hell yeah. with half he- measures, you got to go all the way. For those of you that have no idea what we're talking about or very little, you're like, oh, I've heard of the movie. Apocalypse Now is directed by Francis Ford Coppola. It was based upon Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which is a novella about a a soldier who is sent up a river in Africa during the, the British colonization of Africa when the Africans were being essentially enslaved to mine diamonds, etc., etc. They were being treated terribly. As this guy goes up this river, his mission is to, he's supposed to retrieve Colonel Kurtz and bring him back because he's gone rogue. While the book, or rather the novella, is certainly different than Coppola's adaptation, it's completely salient to the Vietnam War. I mean, it's almost creepily relevant because of the history of Vietnam and because of the French colonists and because of all the colonists that tried to intervene in Vietnam until it got to the point where the Vietnamese were like, we're done with all of you motherfuckers. And no matter what anybody wants to say, kill count death-wise, the Vietnam War was a loss. I mean, it was a psychological blow to not only the United States military, but to the United States public. It was an unpopular war. It was an unwinnable war. And it was a costly war and a long war and a war that ended with us saying, fuck it, and throwing our arms up and going, do your thing. It was part of the ferret out communism bullshit that, you know, still exists to this day, remnants of McCarthyism. When we talk about how well this movie is made and how meticulous the shots are and how well written and well performed it is, it's because it it's done in a way where Coppola, you could tell, knew exactly what he was doing and what he was going for. 
other than the gunfire and the bombs, nothing about this movie is relatively, other than the war, nothing about this movie is relatively loud. Everything is done with kind of a soft touch in a much better way than I will say Malik did with a thin red line. Oh, Everything fuck. is done with a soft touch. <laughs> and even your main bad guys, raison d'etre, delivered at the end is done in a whisper. Almost so, like, I feel like I turn up the volume every single time I watch this movie just to hear the way that the S's echo off of the walls. Are you an assassin? I'm a soldier. You're neither. You're an errand boy. Sent by grocery clerks. To collect the bill. And you could do the scene super loud, considering the fact that there is a tribal dance party happening right outside the doorway. But no, he softens everything that he wants you to focus on, and you fucking do. This movie leaves you at the edge of your seat. I will say it again, because it astounds me how beautiful this movie looks. Knowing what the technology was back in the day, and I know that they remastered it and, and everything and they touched it up, but even so, this movie looks like it was made yesterday. It, uh, it Technically, I, it's it's incredibly ahead of its time. Every single shot is worthy of being framed. This movie, I mean, Coppola's fell off, obviously. His, his heyday was the 70s. He made Godfather 1, Godfather 2, The Conversation, and then this. Those four movies, all of them are the work of someone who is so driven and so, like you said, it ex- knows exactly what they want. And this and movie damn near killed him, didn't it? I'll just put a disclaimer here. I did as much research as I could. I multi-sourced as much as I could. Who knows what percentage of this is true? And we're not doing best director. We're doing best picture. But in the end, how often do you have a film that when, especially in the 70s, that wins best director but doesn't win best picture? It's far more common nowadays when they split the award. But back then, it's like if, if you gave a movie best director, it was best picture. Obviously, this year it was Robert Benton and Kramer versus Kramer. But so despite being obviously this historic nightmare that we're all aware of, the original draft was written by John Milius of uh, Conan the Barbarian fame and George Lucas. In fact, uh, George Lucas was intended to direct this movie following American Graffiti, and he broke off and chose not to. Once Coppola came on board, production was intended to take six weeks, and it was... Do you guys know how long it took? 18 months. Pretty close. Pretty close. It took 16 months. Partway through that, the studio and the investors were like, you're done. They told Coppola to screw. And Coppola being this just at the peak of his game was like, fuck you, and put his own money, reputedly seven million of his own money, into the film when the the studios and everybody was like, you, you're over budget, you're done. Even He even eventually mortgaged his own house and his winery in order to finish the film. Dailies were difficult to come by because the, where 
where they shot it in the Philippines, there were no professional film laboratories. So he had to wait days, sometimes weeks to see the rushes that he shot. So you shoot on a Monday, you got to wait until the following week sometime to get what you shot to know, like, what did I even get that day? Took him almost three years to edit the film. He had approximately 230 hours of footage. That is ridiculous. Throughout the production of the film, because of the stress incurred, he lost somewhere around 100 pounds, as well as uh, suffering a heart attack. And so did Martin Sheen. He suffered Martin a heart Sheen, attack yeah. during the during filming as well. And he was only like 40 or 41 years old, something like that. Yeah, which is terrifying because you're that age and I'm almost that age. And if you wanted any kind of backup to any of this, there is a documentary made by Coppola's wife called Heart of Darkness. And it goes through a lot of this. And the man was manic. It's not about Coppola, but it is. Was it the best picture? We think it was. I don't was think Cop that there's much question about it. Well, right. But was Coppola's contribution to it, was the blood, sweat, and tears that he put into it, the reason it was so good? Maybe. It was and is maybe the most laborious production. Not only did Coppola suffer a heart attack, but as did Sheen. Everybody on the set of this movie suffered for the art. You know, this movie began as this act of anti-war defiance. It kind of became this sick desperation of balancing a movie upon hope and faith. It really was the last great film of the 70s and Coppola's last great movie. It is dramatic. It is disturbing and even funny occasionally. I mean, Kilgore has some great ironic lines. Charlie, don't surf! The only reason it didn't win is because it would have popularized that American audiences were ready to deal with the Vietnam War. And it made a lot of money. It made $150 million on a $31 million budget in 1979. It was a popular film. I get it. I don't like I get why Kramer versus Kramer won. I don't like it. I wonder out of everything that we talk about and will talk about in season two and hopefully seasons after that is Apocalypse Now the most wrong that the Academy has ever been. I would say yes. I would agree uh, just for the sheer amount of work that went into this film and just how gorgeous it is and how entertaining it is. Oh God, like I, I never noticed how that point that you made, Spro, about it being quiet. It's it, silence can almost be more terrifying than anything else. I think about that scene when they finally reach the end of the of the line and just that that soft, deep pulse as they dock. They're just completely surrounded by the indigenous people. I think the French call them the, the Montagnard or something like that. And they're all painted up. They look like fucking ghosts. And that, yeah, the quiet exchanges, just that the, the almost whisper level voices. God, this movie gives me chills to this day. I still, I still love to turn it on, but I, I got to be by myself. I don't want any noise around. I want to just immerse myself in the film. I think it is easily, like I said at the beginning, uh, I, that's part of the reason why I'm super excited to be a part of this. 
I don't think you're going to find a greater travesty within the Academy Awards than giving the Best Picture Oscar to a film like Kramer versus Kramer when it's standing next to a film like Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now is head and shoulders above Kramer versus Kramer. To continue upon that point, who the fuck talks about Kramer versus Kramer? Nobody. Exactly. Divorce is Uh common. It's boring. This movie was just a complete descent into madness. It's, it's about the despair of the human spirit that we don't want to talk about. And Spro, you said something to this effect earlier. You were like, all that jazz is similar in that respect. And that's probably why Kramer versus Kramer won over it, over both of them, because two of them are bleak, but better made films. And one of them gives you hope. And I'm not saying that I don't like movies that give hope, but at this very hopeless time in our lives, there is actually a little bit of solace in that, in knowing that, fuck, back even in 1979, there was shit that people were trying to wrestle with. It was nominated in eight different categories. It won two of them. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Best Writing, which was Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and Best Film Editing. It won Best Sound and Best Cinematography. It was a tough year. And you already said Best Film Editing. It was well-deserved for all that jazz. I will say that I would think it's more egregious that Coppola lost out on Best Directing, and I cannot make an argument for that whatsoever that he lost out to a film as just as common as Kramer versus Kramer, which is almost like directed by somebody that does TV as far as how that film looks and carries on. Well, I like Benton, but I I will also say this. Maybe this is the best way to end our first season because since day one, since the beginning of our first episode, I've been the one that said, fuck the Academy. And you're the one that's like, it's my favorite day of the year when they give out the awards. But there is something of the punk rock aesthetic in Apocalypse Now. It is postmodern in the sense that it pulls no punches. It is humorous. And there are plenty of humorous points. But the parts that are serious are more jarring and upsetting than any other war movie that I can think of. The part where Martin Sheen puts the bullet in that woman and then says, I told you not to stop, keep going. It is unapologetically brutal. The fact that it didn't win is almost a triumph. It's almost exactly the way it should have been. If I had my finger on the trigger, Coppola would have had Best Director and this film would have had Best Picture. And Kramer vs. Kramer would have been laughed off the stage. I gotta believe that Coppola, after what he went through to get this picture made, I don't think he could have given a shit about whether or not it won any awards. Just just putting it out there would have been reward enough. Exactly. And that might be the most important point to end on, that these awards that we quibble over are probably pretty trivial when it comes to what do we remember and what do we forget. And we remember Apocalypse Now. And we forget Kramer versus Kramer. This is the end, beautiful friend. So let's make it official. We're going to tear the award away from Kramer versus Kramer. Uh, Whether Coppola cares or not, we need to right this wrong in history. As far as our simple, quaint little podcast goes. um, And give it over to Apocalypse Now. Horrible.
That's it. Not only is that it for this episode, but that's it for the season. Lawrence, thank you so much for being here. Well, the pleasure has been mine for sure. Thank you so much for letting me be part of it. Now more than ever, reach out to us on all social media because we are putting together ideas for season two. Awards that you disagree with could be selected for us to tackle in 2021. We got some ideas already. We'd be happy to field some more. Thank you so much for being with us all eight episodes of this first season. It has been a pleasure. My name is Lee Charles. I'm Spro. And I'm Lawrence. And this has been the show and the season. And until we talk again, stream on. Always look on the right side of life. For life is quite absurd, and death's the final word. You must always face the curtain with a bow. Forget about your scene, give the audience a grin. Enjoy it, it's your last chance anyhow. So always look on the bright side of death. Just before you draw your terminal breath. Life's a piece of shit when you look at it. Life's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true. You'll see it's all a show, keep them laughing as you go. Just remember that the last laugh is on you. And always look up.